0: All right. Good morning. It's good to be back. I've had a few weeks not in the pulpit, which I'm going to address uh, as we start this morning, but on behalf of the rest of the elders, I just want to say good morning. And if you're new to the branch, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, A couple of things before I dive into that intro. Um, Today, immediately following the gathering, we're doing Next Steps class a little bit differently than we've done in the past, but if you've been coming to the branch for a while and you're curious about who we are, um, we're offering a next steps class immediately following the gathering and we're providing lunch if you signed up We may have a few extra slices of pizza um, So if you're interested in doing that as soon as we close here, we'll go back and, and do the next steps class Okay, uh, the second thing is uh, we have an opportunity to serve the community helping place uh, This coming Saturday November the 5th and that's from 1030 to at the community helping place and I think uh, For more info talk to grace Yep, yeah, right there so um, anyways, you can, it's in our newsletter, you can get more information that way and talk to Grace or somebody else after the service. So um, anyway, so let me give you a quick recap, and I, th- I think this is, so my, my job is uh, to shepherd, to lead, to guide, okay? So when things happen in our church, I like to address them and then help use those as opportunities for guidance and to help people understand, one, who we are, our culture and identity as a church, and it kind of helps you kind of get to understand who I am as uh, I'm one of three elders, but I serve as the, the primary teaching and lead pastor, okay? So I have not taught in three weeks, okay? So some of you are probably like, is he, is he okay? Is everything good? Uh, the answer is a glorious yes, okay? Um, we do, uh, there are a couple of things going on um, when, when I'm not up here, okay? And so having three weeks off is a good time for me to address those things. Uh, one, it's good for me to have rest, Okay. Uh, Two, it's good for you to hear someone other than me, okay? I know that to be true, all right? And three, it's good for the younger men who God is calling to serve his church, to have opportunities before the congregation to lead and to teach them. And so we use the pulpit in a couple different ways. Uh, One, it is a a place of exhortation to dive into the gospel, to study God's word, right? That's what we do here every Sunday. But two, it's a place where uh, young men can, can grow and they get opportunities, Uh, to teach and to lead and so uh, we don't know what the future holds but we're committed to training up uh, the next generation of church leaders and so that's one of the things that's at play uh, when I'm not here Uh, so thank you for giving me a little bit of room Uh, Megan and I were in Denver last weekend it was awesome Um, it was not restful Um, But we're good, and we're glad to be back with our church family. And so, if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and flip over to Exodus chapter 17. If you're new to the branch, we've been going verse by verse uh, through the book of Exodus. We're, I don't know what week we're on, um, maybe 30, somewhere around there. Um, And we're getting close to the halfway point. We will pick up our pace uh, starting in chapter 20. But we have been methodical in how we're studying God's word. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One, we don't want to miss what God has to say, Uh, two, we don't want to make the same mistakes as the Israelites. Okay, uh, so that's why we're doing this. So we're in Exodus chapter 17, uh, verses 8 through 16 is our text for this morning. Um, before we do that, I'm going to give you just a little bit of a flyover recap. Okay, where where we are in the narrative, the redemptive history of God's people, specifically as uh, they have um, left Egypt. So at this point, God has delivered the people of Israel out of slavery and bondage uh, to the Egyptians to Pharaoh. Uh, uh, tenacious ruler, um, someone who laid the burden heavy on the Hebrew people, on God's people. So there had been, at that point, there had been no nation as mighty as Egypt, okay? So this would be the the global superpower who had taken God's people and uh, enslaved them, all right? So there was no one as wealthy, no one as strong, no one as powerful, um, and so they had a mighty military as well as a war chest, that was real deep. Okay? They had all kinds of gold and silver, and uh, they were in a really unique spot uh, location-wise in Egypt with the, uh, with the Nile River and the seas and all that. Okay? so But God leads them out. Right? It took some 400 years, and God's people are finally free, and what is their first Their first place, the destination, the place that they thought was promised is not that, it's the wilderness, right? So they go straight from slavery into wandering in the wilderness, okay? And in that wandering, their complaints begin to grow. Their grumbling begins to grow. Really what's happening is they're doubting that God is good, okay? Have you been there? Maybe if you're in a season of life where you seem to be wandering and you don't know, okay, God, what are you calling me to? I don't know what I'm going to do with my major, or I don't know if I'm going to get this job or who to marry or whatever. You're in a season of wandering, a season of wildernessing. New word. Okay, write it down. We're going to put it in the Bible one day, all right, in the back. But in in the season where God is drawing his people out, he's always drawing them to himself, even when it feels like he's not there. He is. That's the great hope. We've often talked about the book of Exodus being the gospel of Exodus. That God is doing for the people of Israel what the people of Israel could never do for themselves. That's what Jesus is doing for us in the gospel. Okay, And we're going to tie a bow on that here at the end. And so what happens in the wilderness is they, like us, begin to complain. And they're hungry and they're thirsty. And yet God provides for their every need. If you'll remember from, this would have been maybe six weeks ago, God provides direction for them, right, When the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. So they know where to go. And God doesn't take them on the most direct route, does he? He takes them the long way around. And here's what's interesting, is when you're looking at the text, and we've put the map, I didn't, we don't have the map today, okay, so just trust me here. Uh, I'll paint the picture beautifully in your mind, all right, or you can flip to the back of your Bible and look at your own map. But when they're leaving Egypt, right, so I'm going to try to do it backwards, and they, they could go north to get to what will become Israel, the location Israel, right? Israel is a nation, but Israel is also a place. So to get to Jerusalem, the promised land, is just a north shot. It's actually not that far. But God takes them south, right? They go through the Red Sea, and then they go down south to where Mount Sinai is, which is on that little Sinai Peninsula, okay? This is, I don't know if you remember the map, but there's bunny ears of the, the seas, right? And so down there in that point is where they're headed, okay? In Rephidim, where they are today, is a place of oasis. It's a fertile ground. There's a lot of really rich water. Um, it's a place where Israel would have gone and they would have found rest. But they don't go north because who's north? Do you remember? The, the, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of ites, but the, the Philistines were north, and that was sure defeat, okay? They, they would have gone to a battle, and, and God preserves them by taking them south, so they don't have to face that war right after. They were dressed for war, but they were pretending to be warriors, okay, at this point. And so when they go south, and they, as they get to Rephidim, here comes Amalek, and Amalek is there to fight. And so for the first time, Israel's battle is not a battle on the inside, but a battle on the outside, okay? So let's pick up the text in uh, chapter 17, verse 8. We're going to take this in three sections, okay? We're going to deal with the first two verses, and then we're going to do 10 through 13, then 14, 15, and 16, all as segments. We're going to spend a little bit of time. If you're in family group this week, I hope that I, I got some uh, text saying, hey, help us with verse 16. We're going to do some of that today, okay? So if you're in family group and you're like, I don't know what this means, um, I don't either, but I have some options, Okay, so that's what we're going to lay out today. So let's read verses 8 and 9, chapter 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Verse 9, so Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So there are a couple of questions that we have to ask as we dive in here. One, were who were the Amalek? Amalekites. okay? I'm going to say that about a hundred different ways, but Amalekites is how you're supposed to say it, Stephen. Get it together. I've been off for a few weeks, okay? Give me a break. These Hebrew words, all right? So the Amalekites, though, were descendants of who? Does anyone know? Esau, okay? So Jacob and Esau were brothers. They fought in their mother's womb. They hated each other a lot, okay? Who gets the blessing? Their father's blessing, Uh, Jacob gets the blessing, Esau does not. So I want to remind you from Genesis chapter 25, listen to this. This says, The Lord said to her, which is Rebecca, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. This is Genesis 25, verse 23. Chapter 25, verse 23. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Now, this is, a, this is a, a glance into the future, right? And what we've, we've established is here in Exodus, in Christ's upside-down kingdom, where the first are last and the last are first. Christ comes as a servant king, right? He gives everything that he has selflessly, but it's also a look backwards. Do you remember Cain and Abel, right? Brothers who despised each other, and that was the first murder that's recorded in the Bible. But it even goes further than that. It goes back to this, this battle between God and his enemy. Right? This was the battle that was happening in the garden. It just didn't really have a name or a face. It was a threat to the actual kingdom of God. And so this is, for the Amalekites, this is just the beginning of what will become a repetitive assault on Israel. So this isn't their only war. Okay? There's going to be a war here. And in a couple of years, there's going to be another war, and then there's decades of war, and then David kills him. Okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to get you there here in a minute. But just so you know the end of the story, the Amalekites are no longer ruling on the earth. Praise God for that. Neither are the Egyptians. Okay, so uh, here we have uh, a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to read this to you. I know Curtis is excited, he might stand up and shout. But listen to what he says. He gives a great definition here of what's happening with Amalek, okay? He says, the children of Israel were not under the power of Amalek. They were free men for the first time, okay? In generations, they were free, all right? And so we are not under the power of sin any longer. The yoke of sin has been broken by God's grace from off our necks. And now we have to fight not as slaves against a master, but as free men against a foe. Moses never said to the children of Israel while they were in Egypt, go fight with Pharaoh, not at all. It is God's work to bring us out of Egypt and to make us his people. And praise God for that. But when we are delivered from bondage, although it is God's work to help us, we must be active in our cause. Do you see how now the, the onus is tipped? Right? Because of this, now what do we do? Although it is God's work to help us, we must be active in our cause. Now that we are alive from the dead, we must wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness if we are to overcome. Okay, so here's how this plays out in the gospel. Here's how it plays out in everyday life. You can't save yourself, okay? I don't care what anyone tells you. There's nothing that you can do at the table of your own salvation. You bring nothing but deadness, okay? That's at the core of the gospel. In Romans, it says over and over, actually throughout most of the New Testament, that all Are born sinners, okay? And the consequence, the penalty of sin is what? Four letter word you're allowed to say in church dead people, okay? The consequence of sin is death, all right? So what's happening here is that as God saves Israel, now He's equipping Israel to do the work. This is what's happening in the church, okay? God has rescued His people. This is us. If you're in here and you are a Christian, this is us, all right? He has rescued us. He has breathed life back into dead lungs. And now he has called us to participate in his work in the world. Okay, so here's, here's the way that this looks. It, can a Christian sit on his couch all day and do nothing in the world and be a Christ follower? No. They can't. God's people have been called out. They have been drawn out, if you will. And they are a sent people. We are a sent people. This is not our home. We might have an address, we might have a deed, we might have an apartment, you might have a dorm room, but this is not your home. We have a home to come that is actually just the presence of God. What a glorious place that will be. But while we are here, we have been sent on mission to participate in what God is doing in the world. Does that make sense? Okay? So now that we're on the same page, now we have to transition of who were the Amalekites and now why were they fighting? okay? And Deuteronomy 25 gives us a great answer, but the basic answer here is that the Amalekites just didn't fear God. They were an enemy, right? We've we've established this in Exodus, there's two types of people. There are God's people and there are not God's people, okay? So Israel is God's people, and the Amalekites are not God's people. So the basic answer of why they are fighting is they just didn't fear God. So listen to Deuteronomy chapter 25, this is verses 17 through 19, says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail." You know who cuts off the tail of an army? Uh, cowards. You know who's at the back? Weak, women, children. So the Amalekites go straight to the back and then work their way forward, right? We establish how many people left Egypt? 600,000 plus women and children, okay? And the Amalekites go straight to the back. So that's what they're talking about here. Verse 18, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Verse 19, therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in a land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not, what does it say? Forget. What a good reminder. I think for each of us, we have something in our life that is like the Amalekites, right? There are days in my life where I feel more like a Hebrew, and there are days in my life where I feel more like an Amalekite, okay? That's just me being fully transparent here, okay? Sometimes I feel like I'm a a nominal follower of Jesus, like, a, like an Israelite who's just kind of complaining and grumbling that things aren't going perfectly, and sometimes I'm a straight-up enemy, right? Have you been there? Okay? And how does God work? He says, you shall not forget. That's what we're doing here, is this act of remembrance. This is what we've been talking about now for months and months, is that God's people needed to be reminded of God's glory, because as they were reminded of God's glory, they would respond with what? Worship. That's what we do in worship. It's a right response to the presence of God, to the glory of God. What I love about these few verses is that we get introduced to a real hero. Okay? Moses is a hero, right? I mean, Moses is a corrupt hero, but he is chasing after God. And at this point, he's got everything he is is going behind chasing after who God is, his nature and his character, and leading these complaining, grumbling people to the throne of God. Okay? But we get introduced to another one. And his name is Joshua. And Joshua, I'm spoiler alert, okay, Joshua is the one who leads the people to the promised land, not Moses. All right? You've heard me tell this story a few years ago. I stood on top of Mount Nebo. And this is, if you ever get the chance, uh, and maybe we provide opportunities to do that here at the branch. I don't know yet. We'll see. But to go to the Middle East and to actually walk on the dirt that the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same dirt that they're walking on. And it changes the way you read scripture because now you can visualize and you can see everything so I had a day off I was working over there in uh in Jordan right at, in Amman and so I had a day off and so I left and I went to the Dead Sea and on the way down to the Dead Sea the guy who was driving me who I didn't know was going to kill me or if he was there to be my friend I wasn't sure yet he was like it was an Uber that I had called and he's like hey let's don't do Uber I'll just drive you and I was like oh my gosh but no one will know where I'm at you know? and uh but I trusted him anyways and I survived it so there you go And learn. Don't do that twice. Uh, But on the way down to the Dead Sea, he goes, hey, do you want to go stop by Mount Nebo? And I was like, yeah, I do. How'd you know? You know, because we had been talking about what I do and uh, how much I love history, okay? So he takes me to Mount Nebo, and I spent half a day just walking up, and I stood in the place where Moses overlooks the Promised Land, okay? And from the top of Mount Nebo, all you can see is dry land, desert, wilderness, and this beautiful, majestic piece of green, Okay? That's where they were headed. And Joshua is standing right next to him, and this is where God says, Moses, you're not going to go. You won't be the one to deliver the people into the promised land. It's going to be Joshua. All right? And what we'll learn over the next few books in the Old Testament as we enter into Deuteronomy, especially in the book of Joshua, we see how God is using this mighty warrior to pave the way for a better warrior to come who is Jesus. Okay, so Joshua's introduced, he's faithful in the wilderness, Joshua is, and he winds up being the one who leads them into the promised land. Okay, so I'm going to tie a bow on the Amalekites real quick. First Samuel chapter 30, verses 16 through 17, this is where they get their defeat that's promised here, okay? It says, uh, And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing. Because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David, verse 18, recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought it all back. David also captured all the flocks and herds. He was a shepherd. He was good at that. And the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. And here is the fulfillment of God's prophecy that eventually the Amalekites will be wiped from the face of the earth. And now they're just a distant memory, but a, not a memory of the Amalekites, but a memory of the power of God okay? God always defeats his enemies. So the main idea of these first two verses is that God desires our obedience, not our ability, okay? Do you see that here between Moses and Joshua, all right? He desires our obedience, not our ability. I hope you find rest in that. I think a lot of times the church says, hey, if you just tried a little bit harder or worked a little harder or did this better or did that better, you'd be a better Christian. That's not how it works, okay? God does the work. Our job is to be a vessel, a conduit, right? As the God leads us, we respond in obedience, okay? Our good works come out of our faith, not in order to get our faith, all right? Okay, keep going. The key truth, though, the key truth, when God allows us to face opposition, as he did here, it's an opportunity for him to reveal his strength and to draw us closer to himself. That is what he is about, Okay? God's redemptive plan has always been for his own glory. Praise God for that. Okay, let's jump down to verses 10 through 13. Moses um, was in a posture of prayer here, and so what I want to do is I want to dive into what this might look like. So let's read verses 10 down through 13, okay? Uh, So Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up, to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Verse 13, And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So we see Moses now with a posture of prayer, okay? So the Hebrews would have typically, traditionally, they would stand with their arms raised in prayer, okay? So that's Moses's posture here. He was appealing to God to show his power by saving his people. At this point, Moses really cares for his people. Can you see that? I don't think we talk about that enough. Moses really loves his people. Even in the midst of grumbling, even in the midst of complaining, even in the midst of, hey, we'd we'd rather go die in Egypt than die in the wilderness, he continues to pursue them and to love them. Okay? So let's don't miss that. But I think what we take out of this text is that we should be a people who pray. Would you agree with that? We had a meeting this week, actually, all of the leaders in our church. And the number one thing that came out of that meeting is we need to be a church covenanted and committed to praying together. And over the course of the next few weeks and months, we're going to start leveraging our time here for that end, for that purpose. But we should be a people who pray. We should be perseverant when we pray. And we should put people around us to help us understand and know how to pray. There are people sitting probably to the right or to the left of you or to the front or the back of you who has a really robust prayer life. And if you're struggling with your prayer life, you know how you can learn to pray? Pray with them. I promise you. Or go get an old book that has written prayers in it and read them not as a way to become a robot, but as a way to be enriched, to be fulfilled, to grow in your prayer life. And while all of this is true, okay, this is how growing up, even uh, there are parts in in my seminary education where we come to this text, uh, in Hebrew by the way, which we're about to get really complicated from a Hebrew grammatical sense, but um, we would study this passage and the main takeaway would be robust prayer life, okay? I don't think that's what this passage is about, Okay? So while all this, we got Moses' posture of prayer. He's got his staff in his hand. This passage is more about the judgment of God than the prayer of Moses. Is prayer important? Absolutely it is. Is Moses praying here? Probably. Okay? He certainly has taken the form of prayer. Is he praying? I don't know. But what I do know is that through what God is calling Moses to do, God is establishing his judgment over the Amalekites. All right? So, throughout our study of the book of Exodus, the staff has been representative of the judgment of God on those who hate him. It was true in Egypt, when he would tap the water, what happened to the water in the Nile? It turned to blood, okay? When he shook the staff again, what happened? We got gnats, and we got flies, and we got boils, right? And what's happening here is that in all of this, it's a repetition of Pharaoh's refrain. Do you remember Pharaoh's refrain from early in Exodus? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? That's Amalek. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And what is the repetitious response of Moses, of the Lord through Moses? So that you may know that I am the Lord. So that you may know that I am the Lord. So that you may know that I am the Lord. God establishes authority over Amalek to establish authority over us. Okay. Biblical community fights for each other. So we see that here in this, in this picture. Okay. So as Moses is holding his hands up, I mean, if you, you, you want to do this exercise, hold your hands up as long as you can. Uh, I'm at 24 minutes. Okay. I promise to not go more than 11 more, but I guarantee you no one can stand here for 11 minutes with your hands up. All right. Anybody want to bet? No. Liam's got it. Okay. But our arms get tired. Okay. Human limitation. All right, that's who we are. You can't, you can't hold something up, especially if you have something of weight, right? It, it, that time decreases even more. But as Moses was holding his hands up, he's being filled with the spirit of God, His people are winning. They've never won. OK? That's what they thought. But little do they know that the Red Sea was victory for them. Leaving Egypt was victory for them. Avoiding the Philistines was victory for them. And so as Moses stands with his hands up, his army is winning. And as he grows tired and his arms begin to drop, they begin to lose. And so who knows, who notices this? His people, Aaron, his brother, and her. And what do they do? They respond. So here's what this looks like in the church, okay? Whether he's praying or not praying, he's in the posture of prayer. Can we get there? If we're good there, then this next application point is how we respond as a church, If you see a brother or sister in in this church, or maybe outside of this church, who's struggling and they've grown weary, you have a job to do. It is our responsibility as Christians to walk alongside them and to prop their arm up. Okay? And I promise you, I covenant to you before the rest of everyone else in here, if that's you and your arms have grown weary, there are people in this church who want to walk alongside you just to hold your arms up. They don't have the answers. They just have one answer, and that's to point you back towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he said, come to me those who are weary. So what do we get in Jesus? We've, we've said this week after week. We can't understand Exodus theologically until we've understood it Christologically, right? So Jesus is the true and better Moses who also goes up on top of the hill to see a battle being waged. And yet his arms didn't grow weary He didn't need the support of the one on his left or the one on his right. He was there to save them too. And so as he stands on top of the mountain and his arms are outstretched, there is a battle being waged. But it wasn't the battle between an earthly enemy, the Amalekites. It was the battle of sin. It was the battle of death. It was the battle of Satan, the greatest enemy of And things didn't end on the cross, right? We we know this, thank God. The cross is empty. He he didn't stay there. They put him in a tomb, and the tomb didn't hold him either. Because as he came out of the tomb, I think a lot of times in the church we tell people, just bring it to the foot of the cross. Bring whatever you have. Bring it to the foot of the cross. I would say, anyone could go to a cross and die. Only the Son of God could go into a grave and come out alive. Take it to the grave. Take it to the grave. Whatever it is in your life, whatever is the thing that's making you think that the Amalekites are better than you, that somehow God's not willing to wage war in your life, or whatever the thing is that you're walking through, take it to the grave. Because there is a resurrected Savior that's not there who's saying, Come, life is over here. Do you get it? You following along? That is the gospel. Christ-centered focus and community determine our strength and direction. That's the main idea of these verses. God's people only find true victory when he is our focus and our motivation. Okay? That's where we find true victory. All right, let's get into the weeds. Verse 14. I didn't leave myself enough time for this, but we're going to do the best we can. Then the Lord, verse 14, said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Right, we saw that in 1 Samuel. Verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Okay, now verse 16, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek. From generation to generation. Okay, so here's where things get a little tricky. All right? Whose hand? All right? When it says a hand, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. There there are a couple grammatical things that are happening here that are a little tricky. And I just want to lay them out here and then kind of lay out a thesis. And then I'm going to back away. Okay? So that's my job. That's what I'm going to do. All right? The first is whose hand is upon the throne? Well, there's three options from the context of what's happening. It's God's hand, which I'm okay with that. It's God's hand upon the throne. It's his throne. He can put his hand anywhere he wants. It's probably not his hand, because whose hands have we already seen established here? It was Moses' hands being lifted up, where God's doing now work through Moses' hands. It could be Moses' hands, right? That would make sense, too. Theologically, contextually, it would make sense if it's Moses' hands upon the throne, It could be Amalek. Contextually, it makes sense. Amalek would have raised his fist against, right? It's in a different direction than Moses was putting his hands on the throne, but Amalek was fighting against the throne of God, so it could be his hand. I think the best interpretation here, though, is that it's Moses' hand. It's his hand upon the throne. Why does this matter? Because he's surrendering to God. Moses knew that the victory of his people had nothing to do with him. You know how he knew that? Because he couldn't keep his hands up. Okay? So as his hands are weary and tired, he finds the strength to lay his hands on the throne of God in submission to the sovereignty of God. Okay? Do you see that? Now, I'm not going to die on that hill. All right? It could be God's hand. It could be Amalek's hand. I don't think it really matters. Okay? Whose hand it is. What does matter is that God's judgment over Amalek was final. And that God's deliverance of his people is also final. Okay? That's what we need to take out. So when we do rigorous theological work, sometimes we get into grammatical things that just don't make sense. And I could, I could break the Hebrew down. I'd have to have a whiteboard. You would love how I write in Hebrew. My handwriting is really... It looks cleaner in Hebrew than it does in English. Okay? it all, it's all backwards so I can get by with more stuff. But if I were to put it up and take apart, basically what we call this is parsing words, right? If you're an English major, you've done this. I wish I had done it better in English, or I could have done it better in Greek and Hebrew, tomato, tomato, move forward, right? But if we take these words and we break them down, the, the most important thing for us to understand is it's a hand. It's a singular hand. So whether that's God's hand, it's Moses' hand, or Amalek's hand, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that God is doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Okay? That's the hard work of theology. And then you just take a step back and you say, you know, I don't know the answer to that particular question. That's hard to do, isn't it? Especially if someone who doubts the faith comes to you and says, hey, I was studying Hebrew, and I have some problems here. The exegesis of the parsing of this particular verb doesn't seem to add up. And You're like, eh, you're right, but can I tell you the point of the story? Right? This is why we talk about God's plan of redemption as a historical plan, of redemption. From the time that God's people left the garden, he's been trying to do everything he can, and he ultimately does it through Christ to bring them back. Philip Riken He's going to say all of what I just said in a much cleaner, more precise way. So let me quote him now, okay? He says this. He said, "'It's hard to say which interpretation is correct, although the English Standard Version, which is what we teach from here at the branch, seems to offer the best translation, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. But no matter how this verse is understood, each interpretation helps us understand the passage. The Amalekites were fighting against God, whether this is what verse 16 says or not, and God promised vengeance against them whether or not he actually lifted his hand to swear an oath to that effect.' For his part, Moses lifted his hands up to God's throne in prayer. Whatever words he used, by lifting his rod, he was asking for divine intervention. He was appealing to God in a gesture of total dependence upon his power, the kind of dependence that we express today through prayer. So you see how it circles all the way back to Moses' posture? Ultimately, in his final declaration of victory over the Amalekites, It's still a posture of prayer. So what is God calling us to do? He's calling us into the world, isn't he? But he's not calling us into the world unprepared or alone. He's calling us to go into the world by the power of prayer, through the power of prayer, okay? And sometimes that looks like just taking the posture of prayer. You don't always have to know what to say. That's what's beautiful about prayer because Jesus is divinely intervening on your behalf and he knows exactly what to say every single time no matter what. Praise God for that, okay? There have been seasons of my life where I just don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray for. I don't know what words to use. And so what do you do? Have you been there? And it's okay for you to say yes here because I'm saying yes. And I just want to tell you how I've worked through that, okay? I've gone to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom, whose kingdom? Okay, you see what I'm doing? You slow down. Start thinking about the words that you're saying. If you don't know the Lord's Prayer, look it up. It's in your Bible. And read it slowly. And begin to understand that what God is doing in Israel is exactly what he's doing through you, but he's done it finally and he's done it victoriously. There is no going backwards on the gospel. That grave will never be filled again, ever. Not with your bones or my bones. Praise God for that. It's also not with Jesus' bones ain't there, okay? So Jesus is the banner, right? We see that here. The Lord is my banner. What is a banner? A banner is a place in a battle where people know to run to for safety, security, and to get a game plan, okay? So when we come here, All right? When we come here every Sunday, this is exactly what we're doing. We're taking the banner of Jesus and we're sticking it as firmly into the ground as we can, and we're saying, I need rest. I need to recoup. I need to be encouraged. I need to be exhorted. I need to be sent out. I need my people. We are at war in the world. Okay? I hope you see that. It took Israel a while to figure out that they were already, they had spent 400 years at war, they just didn't know it. Okay? I hope that won't be us. So the gospel application here is that the battle is the Lord's. Your battle, my battle, Moses' battle, all of Joshua's battles, those are the Lord's battle. One day there's going to be another prophet to come who's like Moses and another warrior like Joshua. But this time it's one person. And that person is Jesus. Jesus is our banner who rallies to himself his people from every nation, from every tribe, and from every tongue. That's the gospel according to Exodus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, this text. God, I'm grateful for just even this space Uh, season of life as we press into uh, these next few chapters of Exodus. God, I pray that you will help us to see you clearly. Would your spirit move uh, mightily in the rest of our time together? I pray that you will help us to understand that your work in our life is the good news that needs to be shared with those who aren't here yet. The gospel is the greatest story ever told because it is an innocent son coming to rescue lost brothers and sisters. So help us to rest in the truth and the beauty of the gospel this week. Help us to rest in the fact that sometimes we need others to come along and lift up our arms in worship and prayer. Help us to see an empty tomb. God, we love you. We're grateful just for the way that you have blessed our church, the way that you've blessed us individually, and pray that you would continue to drive us and to call us towards Christ-likeness. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.